There have typically been two ways to do theology. And you can ask Luke, he'll know this a lot better than I will. But typically there's two ways to do theology. There's called a theology from above and a theology from below. And so a theology from above starts with the facts of who God is in and of himself, that he's omniscient or all-knowing, he's always present, he's all-powerful. And so you start from there and then you come down, and that's how we know God. But then a theology from below starts by saying, who has God revealed himself in space and time in the earthiness of life? And a lot of times, unfortunately, theologians try to split these two things as though you can do them apart from each other. And in fact, in our gospel, Gospel of John, that you see printed in your bulletin there, a lot of biblical scholars don't particularly like John because they think he's just merely doing some kind of really awesome Jesus who is divorced from the earth. And so you see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and those kind of things. And so John is really at pains to show that the, the eternal God... Jesus is here on earth. And so it's, it's a misnomer to say that John is just merely doing some kind of theology from above, that this Jesus is disconnected, because we see in chapter 1, our passage today, that the way that we know the God from above is how he has revealed himself. It says that he tabernacled amongst us. He dwelt amongst us. He lived in our midst just like God in the Old Testament. He lived in the midst of Israel. So the God in the New Testament, the same God, lives with his people. In fact, he took on flesh like a tent and he dwelt among the people. And so we see here the earthiness of Jesus. That this this incarnate pre-existent word of God put on flesh. And so so I start that by saying, for our time, because it's really easy to try to separate these two things. And what we're going to see here in our in our passage, particularly in John chapter one verses 43 through 51, is that this pre-existent Son dwelt among us and dwells among us by His Spirit. So if you would, read with me in John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that the meditations of our hearts that they would be pleasing to you, Father. 
that, Lord, as we consider this passage for these few moments together, that you would search us and that you would know us and that you would try our hearts and that you would see if there's any sinful way in us and that you would lead us in the path of righteousness. And so, Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit to convict us of sin, to comfort us, and to show us the path that we should walk. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The overarching principle for our story today is that God knows you. That God loves you. That God, in fact, moves heaven and earth to be with you. What I want us to come away from in this passage is that very fact. That God loves you. That God knows you. That indeed He sees you where you're sitting right now, where you'll go this afternoon, what you'll do tonight and throughout the rest of the week because God, this God who is all present, is here right now in this place. Not as though this place is a very special place. It's a hotel. (laughs) But God is here in our midst. And he'll be with us as we go. And so honestly, um, and I've had a really difficult time dividing up this sermon from the very thing that I shared with you earlier about this theology from above and this theology from below. You know, I was trying to look at these few verses and say, okay, hey, you know what? This is what God does. This is what we do. This is what God knows. This is how we know. And yet, if you look at our passage, it really isn't that simple. It really isn't that simple to say, God does this, Philip does that. Because in fact, God is working through Philip to accomplish his purposes. And so, at the risk of doing the very thing that I don't want to do, I do have a few points to share with you. In fact, there's if you wanted to put it in two, two headings, there are two observations in our passage, and there will be two implications from our passage. So what I did last week is I had you circle some words, and I think this is a really good exercise to do to help us slow down and see what this passage says. So if you have a pen, and even if you don't, I want you to make a mental note, and I want you to circle these words in the passage. We're going to just take a, a few seconds for you to do this. In, in your bulletin. I want you to circle the words find and found. And then I want you to circle the words see and saw. And I want you to circle the words know and knew. I want you to go throughout these few verses and I want you to circle those words. Find and found. So find, see, and know. Find, see, and know. These are the verbs that are governing our entire passage. So spend some time just doing that on your own here. Find, see, and know in their derivatives. And then what I want you to do this afternoon is I want you to go home because I can't And that's not the point of of preaching is not to give you every single piece here because tomorrow I could preach this very same passage and and see some amazing things as well because God by His Spirit shows those amazing things to us each time we open up His Word. 
But what I want you to do, and this is where the real gold happens, is where we slow down as Christ's disciples and we listen for him in his word and we look at these words. And what I want you to do is I want you to see how they interact with each other. Who is speaking? Who is knowing? Who is seeing? Who is being seen? Who is being heard? And who is being found? And that's where the gold happens. That's where the diamonds are found is when we take the time to really dig deep into God's word. And so I can't do that uh, entirely for us, but I can give us some some handles on which we can get the uh, point of this text. As I said, the overarching principle is that God loves you. That God cares for you because God sees you. And in fact, what we heard from from Paul in his uh, epistle to the Corinthians is that he, he knows you and he finds you and he sees you because he owns you. The God of all creation owns you. He created you and he redeemed you and so he doubly owns you. But what I want us to see in our first observation of the two is that Jesus intimately sees us. Jesus intimately sees us. And this might be the first point. It may actually be the easiest point for us to accept because Jesus is God. Yeah, of course he sees us, right? Well, how does he see it? How, How does Jesus, who is forever at the right hand of the Father, who's incarnate, who has fleshly eyes, how does he see us? He sees us by his Spirit. He said, it's better for me to go away later on in the, in the Gospel of John. He says, it's better for me to go away so that I can send the Comforter. And when he comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. In fact, he's going to be near you. I'm going to be with you at all times because my spirit will be with you. And so Jesus sees us. And we read this intimate knowledge in our call to worship in Psalm 139. That this, this God of all creation who, who hovered over the earth who created all things, who formed it and shaped it, and then who breathed life into dirt and created Adam and took Adam's rib and made Eve. We see that God is not just kind of apart from creation and he's like a a clock tinkerer who who makes a clock and just lets it fly, but that God is intimately involved in his creation. He's got dirty hands because he's formed us. And it could actually be very frightening. In fact, if you look at Psalm 139 in your own time, um, there's this interplay between being deathly afraid that God is always with us and being extremely comforted by that fact. And it's meant to be that way. Because if we're honest with ourselves, the little songs that we heard about Santa Claus, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why, because Santa's watching you. God's watching you, and you better be careful, because if you don't obey, God's going to smite you. You better not say that. You better not think that. You better not go there, because God's watching you. That's not the picture we see in Psalm 139. That's not the picture we see in Jesus, is it? We see an immensely comforting God who comes, who in fact is closer than your own mother, because he's the one who's knitting you together in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made by him. He's crocheting. He crocheted you before you were even out of your mother's womb. He was there with you. You could go to the, to the highest point in our world, and he's there. You go to the lowest point in our world, he's there. You could even go underneath the earth, and he's there. God is with you because he loves you. Not because he has to be. Because he wants to be. 
Have you considered that? Or, or have you spent more time thinking about how horrible you are as much as how much God cares for you? In fact, in our circles, it's really easy to, in, in some of our theological circles, it's really easy to say, we are so sinful, which is true. I'm not denying that at all. Y'all will hear me say that primarily. I've, I've already confessed today many times that I'm sinful. And yet God loves you. And we hear in the Old Testament, why does God choose Israel? Why does he love Israel? Because he loves Israel. It's not because they did anything. It's not because they were more numerous. It's not because they were awesome. It's not because they got their stuff together. It's because they were pitiful. They were helpless. God said, I choose you because I love you because I love you. See, a lot of times we can forget that God is with us. He's ever present. Ever present. We live our lives as though we're the only one in the room. We live our lives as though we're the only one who's clicking the mouse. We live our lives as though we're the only ones who's looking at that on the internet. A lot of times we can think that we're the only ones who are washing the dishes or fixing the meal or schooling the kids, or, or shuttling them from one thing to the other. We think that we're alone. We think that we're the only ones who don't have adult conversation because we're talking to kids all the time. We think that a lot of times we're the only one being made fun of at school. We're the only one being looked over for that promotion. We're the only one who is trying to make ends meet out of a paycheck that doesn't seem to stretch far enough. We feel like we're the only ones who are left out at recess or the last ones picked. And we forget that God is there with you. As one author put it, take this for what it is, we're not that special. We're not that special to be the only ones who have suffered. If you look at the course of human history, if you look at all the pain and all the suffering, we're not that special to be like, man, I'm the only one who, who I'm by myself all the time. My, my house is so quiet. No, we're not the only ones. We're not the only ones who have been by ourselves. And the story of Scripture is that Jesus himself who was forsaken, Jesus our great high priest who is able to sympathize with us because he knows our frame, he knows that we're but dust. And so Scripture says, you may feel alone, but I promise you, you are never alone, whether you like it or not. God is near and near and nearer to you than a brother, even than your own mother. And we see that God sees you, and He knows you. And even after knowing you and after seeing you, He loves you. You know, I couldn't get the image of Hagar. If you're familiar with uh, the story of Abraham and Hagar... Uh, can't go into all the, the ins and outs of it. But she, she um, became pregnant by Abraham, and Sarah got angry. I can understand that, I'm sure. And she says, get out of here. Get out of here. I don't want you anywhere near in my house. And Hagar runs to the desert, and she's about ready to die. And then what happens in the desert? You can look at this in Genesis 16. What happens in the desert? She goes away from all of her earthly comforts. She goes away from her, 
you know, being in a tent and, and she's out in the elements and she is, is starving, she's thirsty. And what do we hear? That she's left to die and she was all alone. But then in Genesis 16, she says, She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her because God drew near to her. And he said, You, she said, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. So even when you're drawn and thrown out into the desert, even when you feel like you're alone, like you're the last man standing, God says, I'm the God who sees you, and I know, and I love you. See, each of us, every single one of us in this room, have been wronged in some way. Each of us has felt alone at some point in our lives. Each point, each point, some of us has, has felt miserable or like the biggest loser. Each of us at some, to, at some point has, has felt the weight of the world on our shoulders as though we're the only ones. And yet God would remind you and remind me, you don't bear that sickness alone. You don't bear that loneliness alone. You don't bear that darkness alone because God is the one who sees and he's the one who is near to you. You see, God is on the pursuit, this is what we see in our passage particularly, that, that God is on the pursuit to gather his people together. He doesn't just leave them to figure it out on his own. He's not leaving you to figure it out on your own. As though you can pull yourself up with your own bootstraps. He doesn't expect you to just reason your way to him and, and just kind of say, yeah, God exists and, and, and he's good and even though I feel horrible, he's still good. No, he initiates a rescue mission. Look at, look at verse 43, the very beginning. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Why? It's not, it's not very explicit. It doesn't give up because in our text. But we see in the very next sentence why. He found Philip. He decided to go to Galilee to find Philip. He decided to come to your hometown to find you. And he came to this room to find you in the midst of your desert wilderness in the midst of your loneliness to say you know what you you're not that unique and you may not be that special because everybody hurts to quote a good rem song sometimes and so god says i've hurt for you i felt pain i felt forsaken i felt left out i felt the weight of the world on my shoulders because you see philip is ecstatic, isn't he? He's ecstatic in this passage. He says, we found him, verse 45. We found the one who Moses and the prophets have been talking about. We found him. And the very foundation that we see in our text, the reason why Philip found him was because Jesus found him. Jesus initiates with you and with me so that we might not be blind, but so that we might have eyes. Does the blind person ever say, man, why'd you, why'd you make me see? Or the one who's lame saying, man, why'd you give strength to my legs? God, in his mercy, comes to us and says, I will give you sight. I will give you a new heart. And I will give you a new tongue to be able to taste all of the good food that I have for you. The very foundation for our knowing God is because he first knows us. That's the very argument in 1 John. We love because he first loved us. Because look, look at verse 48. 
Nathanael said to Jesus, Hey, how, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip ever called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. You see what? He not only saw him, did he? He not only saw him, but he sent Philip to go get him. You see, it's not as though Jesus is merely pursuing and seeking out his people, but he also invites us to see him. Look at this, look at this interaction between uh, Jesus and Nathaniel. This is our second observation, that Jesus invites us to see him. You see, Nathaniel knew the scriptures really, really well. In fact, he was probably praying and meditating under a fig tree. It's, there's some uh, exegetical reasons for that. But he was probably underneath a fig tree meditating on Scripture, praying. And so that when Philip comes and says, Hey, you know what Moses was talking about in the law? And you know what the prophets were talking about? We found him. And so Nathaniel knew the Scriptures really, really well. But what does Jesus say to him? You know, Nathaniel is flabbergasted. Because Jesus says, before Philip called you, I, I saw you. And, and Nathaniel's just, wow, that's... He says, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He right there makes a declaration of faith saying, wow, that, that's pretty miraculous. And Jesus says, don't stay around just to see miracles. Don't stay around just to see that Jesus can do some pretty awesome stuff, which he can but Jesus says, you're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see greater things than me just being able to see people under fig trees. Indeed, if you stick around long enough, you're going to see heaven opened up. And you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, Jesus doesn't just say you're going to see these things. He invites Nathaniel to see these things. He invites him. He invites him to come see these things because he wants him to experience the fact that God has shown up on the scene. You see, something that could be overlooked in, in our passage, and this is where you really get the intermingling of what God does and what humans do, is that look at verse 43. Jesus found Philip. Verse 44, Philip found Nathaniel. Same verb. Verse 46, Philip invites Nathanael to come and see. So Nathanael is incredulous. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And, and, and Philip responds, come and see. That's the very same thing that Jesus says to his, his disciples in verse 39. And they say, hey, Jesus, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. Come and see where I'm staying. Come and live with me. Come and be intimately related to me and know me. And so Philip is the very instrument that God uses in revealing himself to Nathaniel. And see, it's not just the means to accomplish the end, though. Let me say that again. God using Philip is not just a tool in order to get to Nathaniel. <coughs> what do I mean by that? Jesus' choice to use Philip is an invitation to Philip as well. Jesus' choice to use Philip was an end in and of itself as well. He wanted Philip to be able to see God at work. So that Philip would be able to go and see what God was already doing. Jesus 
said, Philip, I want you to go and I want you to tell others. And in telling others, you get the blessing of seeing what I'm doing. That's the point of evangelism. That's the point of sharing our faith with people. It's not just so that we can win an argument. The point of sharing our faith with people is so that we can see God at work. If we really believe that the Spirit of God is working everywhere in our midst, and we come to our coworkers, we come to our neighbors, and we say, I want to see God at work. And I want to experience, and I want to see Him do an awesome thing. Because you remember Hagar? She's, she, she goes to the desert a second time in, in chapter 21 of Genesis. This time she's with Ishmael, her, her son, and she's near the brink of death. And what does God do? He opens her eyes to see water. Remember Jacob's ladder? This is the illusion that, that Jesus is picking up on. That Jacob fell asleep. That's something we do every day. And he woke up and he said, Surely God is in this place and I didn't perceive it. I didn't see it with my eyes. And maybe like Jacob and like Nathaniel, the struggles you're having right now, the difficulties you're having right now in your life are actually with God himself. Perhaps he's seeking to help you see him face to face in the midst of your problems, in the midst of your pain. He's not just trying to toy with you, but he's wanting to reveal himself to you if you'll have eyes to see. And so we continually find ourselves in God's world with the potential to see him all the time. The special moments of God's revealing himself happen every day, every single day if we'll have eyes to see it. We don't have to wait for a mountaintop experience. We don't have to wait for the dark night of the soul. But that every single day, in the mundane stuff of the world, God is about the work of revealing himself to you and to me. So there are a couple things in this text that I want us to see by implication. So we saw that Jesus knows us intimately. Jesus invites us to see him intimately in the everyday stuff of life. But the question becomes, what keeps us from seeing Jesus? What keeps us from seeing him in the everyday stuff of life? I think there are really two things. Obviously, there are a lot more, but for the purposes of this message, there are a couple things. Quite simply, it's familiarity. It's familiarity with God's ways in such a way that it can dull our senses so that we don't see him. You see, I already mentioned that Nathaniel knew the scriptures really well. And he was probably meditating on him under the fig tree. And his response to Philip was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because he knew that he knew about Bethlehem. He knew about Jerusalem. But nowhere in the Old Testament do you hear anything about Nazareth. So he knew it so well that he was not able to see that God was at work in his midst, in the, town of Gal- in the area of Galilee, in the city of Nazareth. And so he's saying, I know my Bible really well, and I don't remember anything in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of there? But there's another way that, that Nathaniel's response can come across. Instead of him being incredulous that Messiah would come from Nazareth, his statement can actually serve as an indictment on himself. Again, we know that he's a true Israelite, according to Jesus. He is a true Israelite, a true seeker of the kingdom of God. And he was wrestling with God just like Jacob was wrestling with God. He was longing for God to rip the heavens open and to come down to reveal himself. 
but he was looking for it in a specific, certain way that he thought his, he knew his Bible so well that God was not able to act outside of his own finite understanding of what was happening in Scripture. And we, want our, we too want that, don't we? We want God to reveal himself in a specific, certain way. And yet, God shows up in the most obscure, most mundane, most boring places. You see, Nazareth was an insignificant town. In fact, the whole of Galilee was insignificant in the eyes of Rome. They made fun of King Herod. They made fun of the true Israelite king, the king of the Jews, Jesus. They didn't care about Nazareth. They didn't care about Galilee. And so here we are in this podunk town. How is God going to reveal himself? Why in the world would God choose to come to this horrible place? What good can come out of here? Surely God will break open the heavens and come down. And yet, the second thing, Nathaniel's over-familiarity with Scripture shows that he was utterly unfamiliar with God's ways. You see, we can know Scripture so well sometimes that we smother God's revealing himself to us. We oftentimes treat Christianity and religion as an A plus B equals C type mentality. And we smother God's work in the mundane, in the boring. And we can we work really hard to understand a passage, and, and we need to. But then we can act like we possess the truth. Like, I've got this one figured out. I've got verse 43 figured out. i got verse 44, 45. Struggling with 46, but got 47. We can do that, can't we, in Scripture? So that we become possessors of the truth rather than truth possessing us, owning us, directing us, guiding us. And because we're unfamiliar with God's habit of showing up in the mundane world, in the everyday, because He's everywhere, in the normal humdrum days of our existence, we miss His invitation to see Him. So how do we remedy it? How do we remedy this, this problem that we have that God is at pains to reveal Himself to you and to me every day? So how do we see Him? It's by becoming, this is our fourth point, last point, it's by becoming more and more aware of his presence in this everyday stuff of life. How do we see him becoming more and more aware of his presence in this everyday stuff of life? But it's not only becoming aware that he's at work, but it's being open to the very fact that he wants to do something in you and through you in this mundane stuff of life. If we believe that he's always present, then he's always accessible to us. And I don't mean just praying. Yes, we can pray all times at all times. In fact, we're supposed to we're, we're to pray at all times without ceasing. And yet God, in, in our passage here, he challenges Nathaniel and he challenges you and he challenges me to not just pray as in some kind of, hey, I'm just going to have a conversation with God, but to actually see that God is here at work right now. To see Him. To be open to His work in your life right now by His Spirit. By using the eyes of faith to see Him and interact with Him in a real way. In a real way. So, it's kind of going through some different humdrum stuff in my own life. And maybe some of these things will hit you. Being woke in the middle of the night by a child who can't sleep. God is here. 
the sleepless nights, God is here. That argument with your spouse, God is here. The quiet, dark house you come to, to come home to after work every single day, God is here. The coffee that you sip in the morning, God is here. The car that starts up or sometimes doesn't start up, God is here. The diagnosis from the doctor, God is here. The fear of what will happen if you take courage and make the decision that you know you need to make. You may lose a friend, you may lose a job, God is here. The passing of time and children leaving the house and you're an empty nester now, God is here. The pain in your leg, the pain in your back, the pain in your heart, God is here. Being interrupted by one of your children while you're preparing a sermon, yes, God is here. If we'll surrender to each moment of our day and open our eyes to, to ask the question, what is God doing here? You'll have an answer. You won't have all the answers because there's a million things that God is doing. But maybe if you get a glimpse, and maybe if you open yourself up to say, God, I want to see you here in my life, in the mundane stuff of life, he'll open your eyes to see water. He'll open your eyes to see a ladder. Let me uh, end by quoting uh, one theologian I think really gets at the, at the heart of what I'm trying to get at. He says this, to begin to see with new eyes, we must observe and usually be humiliated by the habitual way we encounter each and every moment. It's humiliating to us because we will see that we are well practiced in just a few predictable responses. Not many of our responses are original, fresh, or naturally respectful of what is right in front of us. The most, I'm sorry, the most common human responses to a new moment where God is at work, our most common human responses are mistrust, cynicism, fear, defensiveness, dismissal, and judgmentalism. These are the common ways we try to be in control of the data instead of allowing the moment to get some control over us and teach us something new. To let the moment teach us, we must allow ourselves to be at least slightly stunned by it until it draws us inward and upward toward a subtle experience of wonder. And so we hear God say to you and to me, come and see. Come and see. I'm here and I want to be seen. I want to be known. And if you will have eyes of faith to see, I'll reveal myself to you in the everyday stuff of life. So I'd like for us to take a, a few moments as we do after each time together in this passage just to, just to jot some notes down. What does, this, what does this mean to you specifically? That Jesus knows you intimately. He wants you to know him intimately. In that there are things that keep us from seeing him in the everyday stuff of life. So what is it that God would, would have you do with his text this morning.